Today on CityCast DC, there is an interesting conversation happening around housing vouchers in the city. Now, really, it's interesting, I promise. Uh, they are, are they being doled out equitably? Are landlords taking advantage of them? I'm here with lead producer Priyanka Tilve and audio producer Julia Karen to talk about that and a few other big stories from around town. Today is Friday, September 16th, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. So, Priyanka, we're going to talk about the bigger picture first, which is to say we're going to take a wonky little story and talk to people about how it actually matters to their life, even if they are not, say, recipients of District of Columbia Housing Authority vouchers. Uh, Priyanka has been reading up on some of the reporting, particularly by Ali Schweitzer from DCist, about this, and she is going to explain this to us. Okay, so the thing is that the DCHA, which is the DC Housing Authority, is looking to set a cap on the highest rent that landlords can charge to people who want to rent their apartments using, using housing vouchers. And the cap that they're planning to set is $3,020 per month for a one-bedroom apartment. Um, a lot of people are pointing out that that's pretty high. It's a lot higher than most of the average rents um, for one-bedroom apartments across the city right now, at least according to what the government considers, like, quote, fair market rates. Um, and the reason they're setting it that high, they say, is because they want to try and incentivize landlords in other parts of the city, wealthier parts of the city, to still accept voucher recipients um, as a way of making sure that all neighborhoods across the city have socioeconomic diversity. Um, but, you know, like the high cap rate is creating a lot of conversation around town about what this might do to the housing market um, and whether this is a fair way of going about it. Well, can we step back for a second and just explain like what the deal is with housing vouchers? Because you know, a lot of people would say, "Well, you know, you Priyanka on your your lordly city cast salary uh, can't afford a three thousand twenty dollar apartment. Why should uh, the government be giving vouchers for those two people? Uh, that's a luxury." Yeah, I know it's it's a really good point. So the way the voucher system works is that the tenant chips in. 30% of their income, and then the government takes care of the rest. Like you might be renting in a neighborhood where the average rent is $1,000 and you're going to chip in 30% of your income, the government will pay the rest. Or you could be living in a place where the average rent is $2,200. You're still going to pay 30% of your income, so the same exact amount, and the government is just going to give even more money to cover the rest of your rent. So these vouchers are worth dramatically different amounts depending on where you're living in the city. And so this is where people are saying that the landlords are taking advantage because in some parts of the city, people have done reporting and, and Ali Schweitzer from DCS again, like mentioned this in the piece that she wrote, people have done reporting that say that the landlords are pricing their apartments higher when they're looking to accept housing voucher recipients than for just any other person who's coming in off the street, basically arguing that they're trying to sneak out more money from the government. So like nobody pays the sticker price except the government. Yeah, exactly. That's that's pretty wild. I, I think my question with this is like, 
who is this incentivizing? Yeah, Julia, I think that they're basically trying to incentivize the landlords. The argument that critics are making is that no average person paying rent all by themselves is going to pay these rental prices. And the only way landlords will get $3,000 for a one-bedroom apartment is if they rent out to a voucher recipient and the government is footing that bill. So then did landlords, they spiked the rent in regards to that? And how did they, and how did people figure out that they were like spiking the rents up in those neighborhoods? Like, like if the median price in Van Ness is like, I don't know the precise numbers, like 2K for a one-bedroom seems fair. Were they spiking it to like 2,300 or 2,500 because they knew they were going to get more? They say, obviously, that they're not doing that, right? And then the government also says, oh, no, landlords are nev- would never do that. Gosh, that's terrible. But then people are comparing some different websites, especially this one website that is specifically for housing voucher recipients to use to look for places. Apparently, the prices on that website are higher than on, like, PadMapper that other people in the city might be using. That does kind of indicate that landlords might be spiking the rent to target housing voucher recipients. But again, like everyone else involved says like, no, no, that's not happening. Which to me says, ah, yes, hunting on Zillow and or Trulia or PadMap or whatever turns out to be a good thing because you can price match against this. So the idea is that this matters to people beyond the public housing community. Because in this case, it creates a weird incentive for uh, people to charge higher rents. And so this well-intentioned thing the city is doing to integrate neighborhoods and to deconcentrate poverty is also going to lead, uh, weirdly, to some poor schmo uh, who's just moved to town and trying to rent a place in Van Ness paying more rent than he or she might otherwise pay. And considering that housing, even for like pretty well-earning people, is a real crisis in D.C., the cost of it, this perverse incentive is actually a big deal that really matters to a lot of people. Right. And then also people are concerned about the impact on rent control. There's this concern that if there are high voucher rents, then landlords are incentivized to replace people who have been living in the apartments for a long time on rent control, replace them with voucher holders whose rents wouldn't be covered by rent control. So yeah, like it's basically like a concern that the people who are already living in these neighborhoods, but might not be like the richest people around are going to get the short end of the stick with this. Hmm. Yeah. I would want to see data from a year out if they Mm. implement this. Yeah. Does this actually incentivize people to move? Does it incentivize landlords to change who is living in these apartment buildings? Are the demographics shifting? Because if they are, then I guess the incentive is working. But if it's not, and they're just gaming the system in a way to get more money, then the incentive isn't working. Right. Yeah, that's true. Well, being a landlord might also say, look, um, we're renting our apartment to someone who may be in crisis, to someone who is not employed. And that is inherently a bigger risk in their view. I don't know if that's true, but that's what they might say. And so the amount that that person is paying above the amount of someone walking in off the street is paying is their compensation for uh, taking that risk. You know, you could look at it totally the opposite way and say, um, you may pay your rent every month, but you know, you could have something could go wrong in your life. And then all of a sudden you don't pay your rent and the government's always going to pay the rent. So mm. from a landlord's point of view, they, they may actually be a really good tenant. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I think, Julia, you're right on the money that we kind of just need to wait and see what data comes out a year or two out from this and 
how people are affected, people living in the neighborhoods, how they're affected, and if the government is, like, overpaying. That would be interesting. Yeah, they should take a look at Zillow and Trulia, et cetera. Yeah. Price batch baby. <laughs> yeah. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree. That's to help raise funds for homelessness in DC. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow. There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. All right, why don't we move on to our One of Us feature, where we talk about one really important person in the D.C. community. Julia, tell us about Phil, the chairman of the D.C. Council, and the formal title is chairman, people, so don't think I'm just using sexist language. There was a former chairman called Linda Kropp who always insisted on being called chairman. <laughs> uh, uh, Phil Mandelson is the chairman of the D.C. Council, and uh, he and uh, Mayor Bowser uh, apparently don't get along. They have a reputation for butting heads, even though they are ideologically kind of simpatico. Julia, walk us through this. Yeah. Hope you like feuds, and I hope you like beef. Because this one is feuds. juicy. You love feuds, love beef, great. Because this is a juicy one. So Muriel Bowser and Mendo, I think as many people in the district call them, they've been working together as the head honchos of the D.C. government since 2014. Because Mendo is the chairman, the D.C. council chairman, he's essentially Bowser's number two. So they have to work together. They have to get along to get stuff done. Basically, what this boils down to is they don't like each other. And one of the potential reasons that they don't like each other is a seniority thing. Phil Mendelssohn is 69 years old, Bowser's 50, and people have said that the relationship is strained because Mendelssohn looks down on Bowser and essentially how she got into politics. Mendo had to work his way up through local government, and Bowser made it happen through civically-minded parents. Right now, because there's a chance Republicans could take back the House and Senate, it means they're going to determine if D.C. laws essentially are a go or not. And council is back in session next week. So they've got a limited amount of time to get stuff done while there are House Dems and Senate Dems in control. Mm. And when they butt heads like this, it means stuff doesn't get done. So y'all know the RFK stadium site. They've been arguing about this for years. Mayor Bowser wants a football stadium there and Pete Mendelson is saying no. And what that translates to is other areas of what is going on. And like they've tried to have peace brokers with them to try and figure out what is happening. But the disagreement is so bad that Eleanor Holmes Norton won't introduce legislation for D.C. grabbing the RFK stadium site land until Bowser and Mendelssohn reach an agreement. And her quote here is just chef's kiss. She said, I'm stuck on stupid here. I can't move until they move. This is wild. Yes, Beefs are great. I, I love feuds. I love beefs. But basically, there have been peace brokers in their meetings. But essentially, it means none of this work is going to get done. And now we're going to get four more years of this happening. So, like, will this 
end up being a situation where nothing happens in D.C. government because even though they're ideologically very similar, like nothing's just going to get done. I mean, can I just dissent a little bit here? Absolutely. Please dissent. I mean, you might argue that like it in a democratic system, the executive and the legislative branches are meant to be at loggerheads and that it is a healthy thing. And that if you are one of them and you feel strongly that there should be like either be a stadium or not be a stadium there, you are going to, there are some places where it's going to be either one thing or the other and you can't like split the difference. I mean, I feel like you're being a little fatalistic here about it. Uh, People, uh, people in public life disagree with each other all the time. The former uh, Philadelphia mayor, Ed Rendell, he was the subject of a book about being a mayor. It, it talks about how he would walk up from the mayor's office two stories to the, the head of the city council's office every week. And and, and they there they call the head of the, the president. He was Mr. President this, Mr. President that. And he would act like he was having a conversation with the most important person. But, you know, that's the job, right? If you want to get your shit done... You, you know, make nice and pretend like the person you're talking to is the most important person you ever met and so on. So it's just to say, you know, my tendency is you kind of blame the mayor for that. I mean, a mayor in that circumstance, because like it's like you're the leader and you're meant to to find a way to you get, find to, a way to get, get it done. done. And if that yeah. means uh, making nice with someone you secretly don't like. Or making nice with someone who looks down on you, if that's what the case is, do it. I mean, what's the, you know, who cares? It's just, it's just your time. Well, sure. But part of the problem that's happening here is that typically those arguments would be held behind closed doors. And then, right, you'd present a united front. You'd be together, you'd sign legislation, you'd get it done eventually. The problem here is that the feud is also public. Muriel Bowser is airing this out on Twitter. (laughs) of all places, the best marketplace of ideas, Twitter. <laughs> and and saying, right, she argued over a youth summer employment program um, back in, in 2015. She said, this AM, I signed legislation expanding the summer youth employment program for 2015. This afternoon, Chairman Mendelson proposed ending the permanent expansion, taking us hashtag two steps back. Yeah, that's that's ugly. And that was, in, that was 2015, right? So that was like her first year in office. How's that ugly? I mean, this is a disagreement and she's telling people about it. What's the, I mean, uh, this is, a, I, I don't, it's not like she's saying, you know, you're, you're bald and your car is not nice, you know? I imagine that's said behind closed doors with a peace broker. I mean, look, if, if Joe Biden tweeted that about Mitch McConnell, you all would be like, that's awesome. I think the thing about this, though, is that some issues just get stuck at stalemate for years. And that's a problem. Like, I agree with you, Mike, that it is good for the executive and legislative branches to, you know, be opposed to each other, keep each other in check. But then they're supposed to meet and compromise. And like, maybe you're right, like with the RFK stadium, either there's going to be a football stadium or there isn't, but then they can use that as leverage to discuss other topics. And one of them gets what they want on RFK and the other gets what they want on some other issue. But that's not happening, right? They're just like stuck. The bigger problem here is also that time is of the essence. Like they need to start doing stuff before potentially Republicans are sworn into Congress because Republicans have said, yeah, like we're going to, you know, essentially not allow all this stuff in D.C. to happen. And part of this is because D.C. isn't a state, right? If D.C. were a state, I think these problems wouldn't be as huge as they seem. But because there's such a limited amount of time and the pressure to get stuff done is really high and elevated – I think now it's like, all right, you guys got to find a way to agree or compromise instead of trying to pick a feud on Twitter. 
Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Mike looks ready to feud with us. No, I'm <laughs> I'm ready to do my hot take. You guys want me to do a hot take today, and I'm going to do one. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, and it's about everyone's favorite subject, Metro Station nomenclature. Um, so, so Extremely sexy topic over here. Oh, yeah. So uh, the bunch of metro stations in the suburbs are having their names changed, like White Flint uh, is now North Bethesda. Uh, Largo Town Center is now Downtown Largo. Tyson's Corner, get this, it's now Tyson's because they have formally changed the name. Prince George's Plaza is now Hyattsville Crossing and West Falls Church's secondary name. You know, it was West Falls Church, Virginia Tech, UVA is now just West Falls Church VT, uh, not Vermont, Virginia Tech. Um, so here's the deal with metrosations. It's actually kind of an interesting branding thing. There's a lot of uh, places. I mean, just earlier in this conversation, we were talking about Van Ness. Nobody called it Van Ness until the 80s when they built a metro station there called Van Ness UDC. And it was called that because mm. it's at the place where Van Ness Street intersects with Connecticut Avenue. And there's a bunch of places around uh, Washington that are that way. I don't think people use the word Tenleytown a lot either. That that station was built near Tenley Circle. Um, but, you know, older people would say, well, I'm from AU Park or something like that. Um, it's really sort of like cemented a lot of names. And it, I think the, like the metro map, people who live in a place so internalize it that it kind of like becomes your mental map of the city. You start thinking of, you know, this is closer to this because it's one stop away, even if something, you know, on a different line is equally close as the as the crow flies. Um, and there's this like long, weird kind of ignoble history mm-hmm. of uh, DC using metro names in a kind of aspirational way. So like the Woodley Park station is Woodley Park Zoo. And if you ever go there you see these very sad looking tourists who looked at the metro map and were given to believe that there was a metro station at the zoo only <laughs> to find that they had a long uphill walk in DC summers to the zoo. And similarly on the red line, there's a Tenleytown AU. Well, Tenleytown station has a bus that you can catch to American University. Mm-hmm. It's not actually anywhere near, it's like a mile from the campus of American University. And this has reached, a, actually the, the Woodley Park station actually reached a kind of ridiculous apotheosis uh, of this, but also added Adams Morgan. There's no Metro in Adams Morgan, but it's the closest right. one. So they they wanted to put Adams Morgan on there. So maybe, uh, maybe Adams Morgan businesses wanted uh, tourists to come and they thought this would bring more people there. But it was like, if we can't build an actual subway system that goes everywhere, let's just like put everywhere's name on uh, on a map um, and uh, and make people think the subway system goes everywhere. Um, I, I actually think that uh, by those standards, some of these renames are actually uh, like White Flint being North Bethesda. That is like a geographically accurate uh, name, uh, but it also Ooh. is a... Is a uh, those are uh, I mean, fighting words for Julia. I can see it in her face. Oh, boy. Yeah. My dear. I, I mean, so here's the thing. Part of this is a status marker, right? If right. you're if you're saying, oh, I live in North Bethesda, what does that actually mean? If you look at Google Maps, who has already changed it, it's this like four-mile unincorporated area. If you look at where the White Flint Mall is, which ostensibly this metro station is near, that's in Kensington. That's not North Bethesda. That's Kensington. It has its own name. So if they were to accurately rename it, wouldn't it be like Kensington or Rockville? Like I've seen this creep happen with stuff like North Potomac, where North Potomac is like basically Gaithersburg. Well, right. But the same way that like North Bethesda is classier sounding than South Rockville. So 
the, it's just to say that these metro station names, it's like a, it's like a, uh, it's like a chronicle of our of our unmet aspirations and hopes and oh dreams of who we are. If you want to be in Largo and you want to think of yourself as a place that has a downtown, now you can. <laughs> like nothing else has changed, but you can now think of yourself that way. As someone who's like newer to DC, what is the aspiration behind North Bethesda? Like, what does that convey? Oh, Bethesda is pricier. The aspiration is housing prices. The, okay. the aspiration is real estate marketers can market places near Georgetown Prep or up Rockville Pike or way up on old Georgetown Road and say, oh, no, you're in North Bethesda. You're not in Rockville. That's mm. part of it. And so they can drive the housing prices up because Bethesda is a, you know, very expensive place to live. And it has that status and that marker of like, I've made it in the right. area. So that's you make part it of sound why so evil. <laughs> if you're a, if you're a North Bethesdan and you are thinking, I want to sell my house and retire, uh, it's much better than being a South Rockvillian or a Kensingtonian. Sure, but the borders that the city has decided to draw or the incorporated place has decided to draw aren't actually named that thing. And that is where my gripe is. Julia is a cartographic literalist. Yes, I am a cartographic <laughs> literalist, even though we know that like lines on a map kind of sort of occasionally mean nothing, right? Like borders do occasionally mean nothing. All right, we should wrap things up now, but there is one last honorable mention, underrated story of the week that we want to include. Tell yeah, us about Yeah, okay. It. This is, I, I don't know if you guys saw this um, Washington City paper piece that came out about Mark Plotkin and his ashes. So Plotkin was a journalist in D.C., famously known for being really impatient and, and apparently like a bit cantankerous. I don't want to get into the whole story because I genuinely think that everyone listening should go look this up and read it. It's a piece by Tom Sherwood. It is snarky and entertaining as hell. And like it features so many DC VIP type characters. Former council member Jack Evans is in there. Council member Alyssa Silverman, the reporter Mark Seagraves, like all these names that you see. Kojo Namdi is is mentioned in there because he was supposed to have dinner with Plotkin the Friday before he died. And Plotkin was like, I'm sorry, I'm too tired and died soon after. Um, but the bare bones of this story is Plotkin wanted to be cremated. So he they, they had him cremated, they have his urn, and then they didn't actually follow through on spreading his ashes. So his ashes, they like first broke the urn trying to to get like they wanted <laughs> they wanted to split the ashes between a few different places. So they tried to open the urn so they could divide up the ashes and instead broke the whole thing. Those ashes were then put into a Ziploc bag that is labeled Mark Plotkin. Um and then they were sent back and forth across the country. They've been sitting in a bunch of different people's basements and his ashes have still not been put any of the plate. Like he wanted some of his ashes at the tennis courts he used to play at in DC, his favorite bar in DC. Part of it was supposed to be spread on his mother's grave. Very, very sweet. Um, but but none of that has happened. He's just he's just sitting in some basements. This This article is just beautiful. I highly recommend you all go check it out. Can I just say... What an absolutely hilarious way to go out, generally speaking. Like, mm. now your ashes are on the floor of some rando's apartment or some yeah. rando's housing building instead of on the Volta tennis courts or something. Th this is the way I want to go out. I, I want the Mark Plotkin <laughs> treatment. That's what I want. I'll keep you in my in my basement, Julia. Oh, God. That sounds a little <laughs> that sounds a little dangerous. This is like that story about the guy driving around with Einstein's brain in his trunk. Yeah. Except with DC statehood. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so that's all for today here on CityCast DC. I'm Priyanka Tove, the team's lead producer. I'm Julia Kerr, and I'm one of the audio producers. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Koti Stemmerman, and our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. The music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend? Rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. Did you guys see that Federer is retiring? Oh, come on. I mean, like, he should have retired ages ago, to be fair. And I've been, like, mentally preparing myself for this day for years. But I'm still heartbroken.